Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible for you, and so we're trying to spoon-feed you the latest research. Now then, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering from this past week. First off, we have the highlights of everything that you really need to know about pediatric DKA. Then, an ounce of prevention could seriously decrease your patient's morbidity and mortality when it comes to delirium. After that, an emergency department view of myocarditis, followed by myocarditis again, but this time a little bit more about pediatrics. And then finally, a few tips on how to get the best view possible with your laryngoscopy. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were provided by The Smiley, Laura Murphy, Carmen Wolf, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. Now then, without further ado, we have the first article, which was titled Managing Diabetic Ketoacidosis in Children Out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. I need not convince you that DKA in children is a big deal. The numbers speak for themselves. DKA is present in 30% of new diagnoses of children with type 1 diabetes, and then occurs in 6-8% of these same children each year thereafter. So that's a big deal, we've got to master managing it. Now the lead up to DKA is going to be your classic polyuria, polydipsia, weight loss, and fatigue. Some of these features, particularly polyuria, might be harder to spot in a child who's not yet continent. So you've got to keep it in your mind. Once DKA starts though, then these kids start to get pretty sick. Vomiting, headaches, abdominal pain, these are all common symptoms. Get far enough along and then they'll start Kuzmal breathing and become altered. The BP is typically normal, but keep of note that hypertension is not a reassuring sign. This is actually associated with cerebral edema. Labs are going to clinch the diagnosis pretty quickly. Many handheld finger stick glucometers are just going to read high, and that's exactly what the glucose is going to be, very high. Serum ketones will also be high, with some spillover into the urine. Bicarb expected to be less than 15, and the pH, of course, is going to be low. Ketoacidosis. Electrolytes are going to be another priority. Sodium levels should be corrected according to the glucose, so if your lab doesn't do that automatically, know that you might have to. Potassium may also be high, and this is because of shifting out of cells and into circulation to make up for all the potassium that's being lost in the urine. Total body potassium levels are always going to be low. A hemoglobin A1c can give you an idea of how long-term control was going if this isn't a new diagnosis, but it's not going to be an acute priority. Treatment is too number intensive, unfortunately, for me to bother saying it over the podcast. It's just going to boggle you up. It's going to boggle me up. But you can check out the blog, and then they've got a few numbers on there, and I'll just stick with some pearls. For example, don't bolus insulin in children. Always start an infusion after you've finished with your fluid resuscitation. Now, despite how these kids might look, you want to avoid intubation if at all possible. Their minute ventilation is often going to be huge, and it can be hard to properly duplicate this with a ventilator. The last treatment pearl is to avoid central lines. DKA increases the chances of a DVT in these patients, and they don't need that on top of everything else. And then finally, what we're all kind of afraid of in these kids is cerebral edema. This may only occur in 1% of cases, but it's more common the younger the patient is and the sicker they are. 
Don't limit your fluids because of this, though. There's no correlation between giving fluids and having cerebral edema, although there may be an association between sodium bicarboluses and cerebral edema. So this is actually going to be a clinical diagnosis based on headache, altered mental status, incontinence, and Cushing's triad. Remember uh, how I said hypertension was linked? Well, this comes back around now. And so you'll want to treat with hypertonic saline, 3%, and do this quickly. If you're unsure about the diagnosis and you want to get a CT to make yourself feel more comfortable about it, I, I wouldn't blame you. But you should start treating before you send them to the CT. And there you go, most of what you need to know about kids with DKA. In a spoonful, be very watchful of these patients. They need to be recognized, pumped full of fluids, insulin, and potassium, and then watched very closely for cerebral edema. Then the next article we have is titled, How We Do It, How We Prevent and Treat Delirium in the ICU out of the Journal of Chest. So delirium is very common in the critically ill. It's seen in as many as 60 to 80% of mechanically ventilated patients and 20 to 50% of other critically ill patients. This is not just a benign complication either. Delirium is associated with significantly greater mortality, length of stay, cost, and worse long-term outcomes. Unless a patient presents in delirium, then delirium is much less of an emergency department problem than it is an ICU problem. But the thing is, the care that starts in the emergency department, it really impacts the rest of their hospital stay. We need to be consciously trying to prevent and treat delirium. There are three best practice methods for dealing with delirium. First and foremost are the non-pharmacological interventions. And then there's also screening and keeping in mind your sedation protocols. Now, most of the non-pharmacological interventions sound like, honestly, they just belong in the Geneva Convention for just humane treatment of people in general. This goes to show how inhospitable hospitals, there's some irony for you, can really be for a lot of people. To prevent and treat delirium, you want a family presence. This is really important. You want early mobilization. You want clocks, calendars, anything that orients the patient to what time and day it is. And then you want very clear night and day cues. These help a lot. Sleep should be uninterrupted, if at all possible, and then plenty of sunlight during the day. If your ER is anything like any of the ERs that I've worked in, then there's absolutely no sunlight getting down there at all. So getting patients out of the ER as soon as possible is probably best. Since non-pharmacological interventions all rely on the patient's environment, make sure that your patient can sense the environment the best way they possibly can. And so you're going to want to be providing them with their hearing and vision aids. They need to be as aware of their surroundings as possible and then have lots of information coming from the surroundings as well. And this also implies that you should be minimizing sedation. Many patients will enter agitated delirium, and they'll get your attention, and then it becomes very tempting to sedate them. And this may be necessary, but remember that no pharmacological agents are useful in preventing delirium. And if sedation is necessary, then the lowest dose possible for the shortest amount of time possible is best. And really try to avoid benzodiazepines. For mechanically ventilated patients, now I know we just covered that paper that was well publicized about awareness during intubation and paralyzation, but know that ICU patients are not GCS3T. It's not necessary and it's probably harmful. Light sedation is enough and you can use the RAS score to target the right level. Lastly, don't forget that there are validated tools for detecting delirium. 
CAM-ICU is one that's often used in ICUs, but there's a shorter B-CAM version that's available for emergency department use. Now really lastly, don't forget that delirium isn't just agitation. A somnolent patient might not get your attention as much as one who's, you know, really active and agitated, but a hypoactive delirium also exists. Inattention is one of the key features of delirium. In a spoonful, prevention with non-pharmacological means is paramount. Lightly sedate intubated patients and use screening tools to catch delirium when it happens. That's the best thing that we can do for our patients. And that brings us to the third article titled Diagnosis and Management of Myocarditis, an evidence-based review for the emergency medicine clinician out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. What with COVID showing signs of, you know, cardiac involvement, myocarditis has been on the radar of way more ER docs over the last year than it typically would be. But it's tricky diagnosis, and even trickier if you're not considering it at all. So let's do a refresher so that everybody has it at least in the back of their minds. Myocarditis, as the name implies, is an inflammatory process. So the usual culprits are present, like infections, toxins, and autoimmunity. If you're living in Europe or North America, then viral causes, that includes COVID now, are the most common. If you're from Central or South America, then Chagas disease actually takes the cake. These etiologies are things that can put myocarditis on your radar, though, since many patients will have a preceding viral prodrome. Besides that, these patients are going to look pretty non-specifically like ACS or heart failure, presenting with tachypnea, tachycardia, chest pain, as well as dyspnea in a lot of adults. If you're suspecting sepsis, but your patients are actually worsening with fluids, then take a pause and consider myocarditis. A lot of these patients are going to have a fever as well. The emergency department workup isn't going to really contain any surprises. Get an ECG, inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP, troponins, BNP, chest x-ray, and cardiac pocus can help assess dysfunction. None of these are necessarily going to clinch your diagnosis, but they can at least give you a suspicion. Your admitting service can worry about getting a cardiac MRI or going to the cath lab for biopsies as needed, and that's what will confirm your diagnosis. Speaking of admission, though, these patients are going to need it. The outcomes aren't exactly rosy. About 50% fully recover, 30% decompensate, and then 20% require transplant. What you'll need to be worried about in the ER is combating heart failure, though. Steroids can be used in some cases. IVIG is also used, but it's still kind of controversial. And then avoid NSAIDs, as there is some evidence that it worsens mortality. The most severe cases will need to be moved to an ECMO or transplant center. In a spoonful, the most important thing is probably that myocarditis is on your radar, especially if the cardiac failure picture isn't exactly fitting all your usual boxes. That said, treat by very closely monitoring, not overdoing the fluids, and then mechanical support may be needed if they really decompensate. And now that brings us to the fourth article titled Diagnosis and Management of Myocarditis in Children, a scientific statement from the American Heart Association out of the journal Circulation. We've just gone over the major points for myocarditis. I won't rehash too much of what we've just said. We'll try to focus a little bit on myocarditis and how that can be different in kids. And it's not that different. First off, though, the American Heart Association is calling for standardization of myocarditis definitions for diagnosis so that rigorous trials can be done. In the meantime, we've only got the studies that we've got. The presentations are similar between adults and kids. A post-viral prodrome can precede the illness. Arrhythmias, syncope on history are also something you might catch. 
Common symptoms are fatigue, dyspnea, fever, chest pain, and palpitations. Less commonly, you'll see tachypnea, tachycardia, hepatomegaly, or respiratory distress. The article actually has all the percentages for all of these symptoms listed and how commonly you might see them. The diagnosis is, just like for adults, clinched with a biopsy. That's definite proof that they have myocarditis. But you can confirm the diagnosis using a cardiac MRI. Your clinical picture and all of the tests that you can do in the emergency department are pretty nonspecific, so that's only really going to lead you to a strong suspicion, unfortunately. The management is conservative, with mostly just supportive care, adding inotropes and vasopressors as needed, as well as ECMO and ventricular assist devices if it's really necessary, which it can be necessary in up to 23% of patients. In a spoonful, kids and adults get myocarditis in very similar ways. Best advice is to just try to realize that's what's happening and then provide supportive management in the meantime. Not too much fluids, though. And that brings us to the last article titled... Engagement of the Median Glossoepiglottic Fold and the Laryngeal Views During Emergency Department Intubations out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Now, the first step to maximizing your intubation success is always to unfortunately let the most experienced person in the room do it. And you want that to be you, though. The best way to do that is to have the best views. Then it's as simple as passing a tube through an opening. That's not so hard. You want to use the blade to lift the epiglottis, expose that glottic opening, and then you've got the best thing you can have, a beautiful set of cords. Let's cover a little bit of anatomy about exactly the best way to do that, since a better Cormac-Lehan grade is actually associated with increased intubation success. Now then, the vallecula is the space between the glottis and the anterior oropharynx. Deep in this pocket, right in the middle, is the hyoepiglottic ligament, this is a structure that you care about because when, you, when you're being told to put your blade in the vallecula, that's the structure that you want to be engaging with the tip of your blade because engaging this ligament is what will raise the epiglottis right out of the way for the best view. In this study, a team reviewed 183 video laryngoscopy attempts from a single center. In their review, they found that when the hyoepiglottic ligament was engaged by getting the blade right down the middle of the vallecula, there was an association with a better Cormac-Lehan grade. Unfortunately, this study did not report intubation success rates, so we lack any patient-relevant outcomes. But it is generally accepted that lower grades are associated with better success rates. So if you're teaching intubations, or you've always struggled with visualizing exactly what you're aiming to do, then being aware of the hyoepiglottic ligament can certainly help you to conceptualize a successful laryngoscopy, which hopefully accompanies a successful intubation, but that wasn't measured in this study. In a spoonful, visualization is key, and now you can be sure to add engagement of the hyoepiglottic ligament to your visualization of the perfect intubation. So that sums us up for this week. Let's do a quick pass over everything that we covered just to consolidate. First off, we saw a quick review of DKA in kids. After that, we talked about delirium. Delirium can be monitored with validated tools, take an ICU approach to sedating intubated patients, and keep it on the lighter side. I know it's hard and we don't have the same nursing support as an ICU, but still, just keep it in mind. And then finally, give them the kind of environment that you'd want to be in the hospital with. Have a full night's sleep, lots of sunlight, their family, and clocks that they know how long you've kept them waiting. From the third article, myocarditis is kind of a slippery fish. But when you catch it, there's still nothing specific that you should be doing. 
Best to admit these patients quickly so that they can be monitored properly and transferred to higher levels of care if needed. From the fourth article, myocarditis in kids is largely similar. And then finally, from the fifth article, I learned about all of the anatomy of the airway once upon a time, but now I'm happy to be reminded of it. You want to put your blade right down into the vellicula, and now I know that I always want it to be midline so that I can engage the hyoepiglottic ligament to properly lift up that epiglottis and get the very best view. And that wraps us up. So, you've earned them, we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. Details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. We're in the very same place you can find links to all the articles we've covered, as well as the summaries originally written by their authors before I adapted them for this podcast. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.